All right, Luke chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a paperback Bible right there in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you this morning. Please take that with you and fall in love with Christ in the Scriptures, man. When you get to the book of Luke chapter 23, we're going to be in verses 32 through 43 this morning. 32 through 43. When you get there, look up at me and say, I need him. Yeah, that's true this morning. Upon the conclusion of the reading of the text, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with thanks be to God. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by, watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, reading, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Westside, no Philemon intro or anything like that. Um, If you're new with us today, we spent about five to six weeks walking through a New Testament book. We love the Bible here at Westside, so we bounce back and forth. Had a lot of people ask me, what's coming up? What's coming up? What are we doing? What's next? What's next? Well, what we're going to be doing is we're not going to be walking particularly through a book of the Bible. One of the things I've been burdened about, and um, my job actually in the book of Ephesians says I'm not to do the work. I'm actually to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so one of the things I'm very burdened for is if you were to be asked by a family member or a friend, hey, hey, um, people say you're a Christian or you say that you're a Christian. Um, I hear the word gospel a lot. Can you tell me what the gospel is? Anyone, anyone, right? Okay. We're going to spend time in a series coming up called Break It Down. And basically what we're going to do is put the jelly on the bottom shelf and we are going to break it down. Maybe some dance moves. I don't know. You know, we'll see later on. But the goal of this is to break the gospel down to a way in which we can learn this, we can teach this. If we were in an elevator, if we were standing in line at Walmart and someone asked, what is this? We're going to learn. We're going to spend some time this summer to look at what is it about, how do I do this, and this, that, or the other. And so today is really sort of a standalone message, but I love days like today because it allows me to sort of do a one-off and assess some things um, that I've been praying about through counseling and things like that. And one of the things that I'm really surprised about is is the topic we're going to learn about today, this idea of of assurance. Um, Assurance of salvation would be the theological doctrinal term that um, theologians would use. 
But um, uh, raise your hand, maybe as an intro, raise your hand. Has anybody ever worked in customer service, retail, sort of anything like that? Your reward is great in heaven, okay, right? Um, you just never know what humanity's like until you work with humanity, right, and you serve them. And all through college and high school, I worked in sales, worked in retail, this, that, or the other. And one of the worst times of the year of working in retail, apart from Christmas, <laughs> you know, believe it or not, um, was always once a year whenever you did inventory, right? When you did inventory. And so I actually, um, for a long time uh, here in Popper Bluff, I worked part-time um, at a, a manager position at Hastings, right? Remember Hastings, right? Now it's Planet Fitness, you know, Hastings. But it was always bad because I was over the department of DVDs. Now, if you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Because Hastings was confused. They didn't know if they wanted to be a pawn shop or if they wanted to be like a DVD or like that. So people could come in, sell their DVDs, and then they would turn right around and buy more DVDs. It was fascinating to me. And so you had to count. So this is how kind of inventory worked is you had a list of a bazillion DVDs. And literally, like, listen, we can send a man on the moon. Okay, we can save people who've been in a cave, like all this type of stuff, but we still have to physically count every DVD, go to a list and go, not here, got that one, don't have this one. And it was excruciating, right? It was called inventory. And, and did you know that, that the scriptures, that the Bible actually tells us as believers to take inventory on our life, to, to look at your life. So inventory, you have a list of what you should have, and then you look at whether I do or don't have this. And then listen, if we don't have this, we got some problems, right? right? we got to report profit and loss, this, that, and the other. And the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Corinth, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? What's he saying? Inventory, inventory. Examine yourselves. Look at your life. Look at your life to see whether or not this thing is true. Now, I can do this one of two ways today, right? I could dangle you over the fire, right, and scare you to death. I mean, just, is this true? Do you have this? Is it not? This, that, or the other. Or, or I could lessen the scriptures. Or like, always be weary when you listen to a preacher that says, now, what Paul really meant here was, Paul didn't really mean for you to, down with that guy, right? Turn that podcast off, bro, Okay. But one of the things through counseling and through talking with believers is oftentimes people really are scared and doubt a lot whether, whether they're in the faith. Is this thing true, Jason? How do I know about this? And actually, here's what's so great about the Bible. Here's why I love the Word of God. is because it doesn't just want you floating out at sea. Like It doesn't want you constantly living in a state of doubt like that. And actually, the Apostle John writes in 1 John these words, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That's good, right? 
That's good. So I'm writing this to believers, John says, that you may know, that you may know that you have eternal life. But why do we struggle with this? Why, why do we doubt? Why do we wonder? Why do we sometimes live in fear, maybe a little bit? If you're honest, we could be, God forbid we're honest in church, right? Oh, man, right? Live in fear a little bit about this? I think, I think there's a number of reasons why, why we doubt our salvation. Now, I need to be careful with this doubt thing, right? Because sometimes it's either like, you should never doubt, brother, brother, snap into a Slim Jam while you're at it, right? Brother, brother, right? Or it's this idea of, oh, you can always doubt, man. Jesus loves you, and you can just doubt. You can doubt, doubt, doubt. I mean, I don't even know, was Jesus even? Like, listen, there's a healthy middle, okay? Doubting is okay to an extent. Here's the key. It's what you do with your doubts. That, that's the key. It's what you do with them. Do you allow your doubts to take you to YouTube to be like, is the Bible true? Oh, man, I don't know. Right? I saw this video of a guy living in his mom's basement, and he was like, I don't think it's true. Are you kidding me? Right? Or do your doubts about the scriptures chase to like some scholarly stuff? And we, You see, it's what we do with our doubts. But why do we doubt? I think the first thing is this, is, is sometimes we look to our performance, right? Some days, you know, we wake up and it's just good. The rooster crows, the coffee tasted great. You didn't kick the cat whenever you left the house. I mean, it's good. And so you're like, man, today is great. I definitely, you know, believe that I'm in the faith. And then there's days where you wake up and you're like, Lord, I need you, <laughs> you know? And we look to our performance in our life. And we fail a lot, right? Oh, am I alone? I mean, is it just up here? You leave me by myself. We fail a lot in life sometimes. And so we look to our performance, and that's not actually the place that we should be looking. The second thing I think is this, is we look to our sin, which kind of makes us look at our performance. It's sort of kind of built together. And maybe this is sort of like a chronic sin that we struggle with in our life constantly, type of a thing, trying to find victory over this. We struggle, we struggle. Or it's maybe looking to our past. Like the enemy sort of speaks lies and is like, you? You saved? Yeah, right. If anybody else in your church actually knew, they would. Those are lies. Those are lies. And when we look there and when we live there, it begins to doubt whether this thing is true or not. But one of the main things I think is this, is, is we look to our feelings, Feelings. So, so really this revivalist movement has swept Western Christianity and it's sort of what I like to call a camp high, right? So as we go to this monumental experience, we go to camp, everybody gets saved at camp every year, all that type of stuff, right? You know what I mean? And it's this, oh, the music and the thing, and then the story was told, then they showed the starving kids video, and then it was like, oh, then they said, do you want to come forward? And they dimmed the lights, and they lit some candles, and I was like, oh, I was crying. I don't even know why I was crying. And so I, was, I felt so saved then, right? But... On Monday in Popper Bluff, Westwood traffic at 5 o'clock, right? Because you would think you're in St. Louis in those moments. Then there's days where I just, I don't know if I feel that. Listen, our feelings are a good gauge for us, but they're a poor guide. Very poor guide for us. So what are we, what are we supposed to do? Well, we know that the Bible tells us, number one, to do inventory. That's clear. But number two, the Bible tells us that, that you can know this. So how about we take an inventory of assurance? 
How about, how about we walk through something? And the reason why we chose this passage today, pretty important passage, I would think, because Jesus is being crucified, okay? Pretty important historical time when God died, <laughs> you know, pretty big deal. But he's crucified between two thieves, two criminals, if you will. And there's, there's two different responses to Jesus here. But one of them is Jesus tells one of these guys, look in verse 43. And he, do you have your Bibles? Do you have your Bibles in front of you so you know I'm not making this up, right? Verse 43. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know about you, but that guy is probably having a pretty good day today, don't you think, right? Jesus tells this guy, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. It's the Greek word almost for garden. has the idea of going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the garden of Eden there. And so, so, so what did this guy do? What happened here in this scene and in this passage of Scripture that this guy got the assurance that Jesus told him, you will be with me in paradise? Well, listen, for some of you, I think it's going to be important for maybe you to keep this outline. Maybe, maybe put it in the front of your Bible. What's going to be really important is for you to have your Bible in front of you to know that this is coming from the Scriptures here. And on days when you need to examine yourself, and on days when you don't, quote, feel like it, I think we can go back to these moments and see how can I take inventory? So, so what do we see? What are the first things that we see in the passage? Well, it's real positive. The first thing is this, a conviction of sin. Isn't that great? Just right off the bat, right? Point number one, if you will, a conviction of sin. Now, what's interesting, what's going on is when you read the other gospel accounts, you see that something happens with this man particularly that we're zoning in on. We see that something happens and something changes. That, that he doesn't just start out in the very beginning with this idea of, oh, Jesus, remember me and confessing and all this stuff. And Matthew's gospel actually says this in Matthew 27. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So here's what it says. It says that something happened, something changed. When they were first crucified next to Jesus, they were both basically making fun, railed at him. Oh, this guy, this guy, the Jesus guy, the water into wine guy, that'd be helpful right now on the cross, right? And so they're making fun and they're reviling, but then we see something changes. Now, the crucifixion would have lasted about six hours. Historical fact um, no, by the way, maybe you're a doubter in here. Maybe you're sort of peeking over the fence. You're like, is this make-believe? No faith in the world and no government, including the Roman government, deny that a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. That's historical fact, okay? So if you're saying, oh, that's not true, you're dumb and you're wrong. Okay, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I'm just saying it's historical. It's historical, Okay. And so as this is happening, six hours, worst death anyone could ever die from. Something changes within this man. Now, here's what's important. Here's the application that we can draw the bridge to your life. Whenever I ask someone, are you a Christian? Or do you, do you know that you're a Christian? 
there are a number of responses that are very alarming to me. The first one would be, um, oh man, I mean, I, was, I grew up in church. Eh, wrong answer. Wrong answer. Well, I mean, you know, my grandmother, eh, praise God for your nanny, your Grammy, your Mimi, your boo-boo, whatever her name is, okay? I praise God she took you to church. I praise God she drove by that house when nobody else would take you, and she prayed for your soul, and she took you to church. But look up here. Just because she took you to church does not mean that you are a Christian and a believer, okay? And I hear things all the time. I'm trying, wrong answer. What I'm trying to teach you is, is, is I'm showing you here from the passage is this. All change starts with the crisis. So this man is not being crucified and he's, quote, always loved Jesus. The scriptures do not teach that. There is a change that happens. And the reality is, is that you realize at some point in your life, I don't love Jesus. I don't love Jesus. I need to love Jesus. I see my sin and my shortcomings, and I need him for that. Now, some of you have grown up in a stream of faith where it was like, um, uh, do you know your birthday? Do you know your birthday? February the 11th, 1987, praise God. Do you know your second birthday? Huh? 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 You know when you walked that aisle and prayed that prayer? Do you know the moment? Huh? I'm sorry. You say you love Jesus, but you seem to be real mad about it right now, okay? I don't see that anywhere in the Bible, all right? Now, I understand what that stream of faith is doing. They want you to know. I get that. That's great. But do you, know what, do you know what testimony I pray and beg that my kids have? Like, we think we have to have a testimony in church of, oh, man, I, was, I woke up, didn't know where I was, had a heroin needle in my arm and a pistol in the other. I'd killed a guy, didn't even know what happened, man. Then Jesus appeared, saved. That's awesome. Like, pray, I always say, Jesus saved me from sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but Jesus saved my wife from Sunday school. Now, some of you might not know the exact moment when that crisis came. That's okay. But you have to know that it came. You have to know that there was a moment when you did not love Jesus. And then God opened up your heart to see the folly of your sin and who you were. And then to see Christ, who he is. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. The plain truth is that a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. Without it, such doctrines as justification, conversion, sanctification, are words and names which convey no meaning to the mind. The first things, therefore, that God does when he makes anyone a new creature in Christ is to send light into his heart and to show him that he or she is a guilty sinner. That has to start there. Listen, don't let the tattoos and the white sneakers fool you. It's an old school message, man. This message has never changed. And how do you know the difference? Listen, this is good. How do you know the difference of true conviction of sin? Because I think a lot of people feel bad that they got caught. 
right? I think a lot of people feel bad for the effects. Oh, I lost my family. Oh, I lost my kids. Oh, I lost my job. Oh. How do you separate that from true conviction? Well, the thief tells you. Look at what he says in verse 40. But the other rebuked him. So one guy saying, oh, yeah, you're Jesus. Uh, why don't you save yourself and get me off the cross? That'd be real helpful too. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, here it is. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Now, here it is. Verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds But this man has done nothing wrong. What's this man doing? No excuses. No excuses. Listen, this man would never say that he's being tried justly by the Roman government. He would never say that because the Roman government was so crooked. What he is saying is, I understand what I am receiving because I have fallen short of this. And I believe that the scriptures teach that you cannot confess that apart from the workings of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because just look at our society. The only sin in today's society is to call something a sin. Right? The only thing offensive and sinful in today's society is to say that's offensive and that's sinful. And what this guy is doing is he's not making any more excuses. And now there's streams of faith that will say, oh, you don't need to preach that, Jason. Oh, grace. Grace is so big. You don't need to remind people of that. Listen, I understand what you're saying, but I believe that we are so sinful that we're blind to our own sin. I believe that we're so sinful that we don't even understand the travesty and the effect of our sin. And I believe this. Until we see ourselves rightly, we will never understand ourselves fully, ever. Until you understand the brokenness of who we are, you will never actually fully understand who you are. And you will live in constant doubt. Why am I, listen, listen. Hey, I actually believe uh, uh, Lady Gaga's right. I believe we're born this way, 100%. Born a sinner, bent, broken, from the womb. Psalm 51.5, for iniquity, And in sin was I conceived. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Colossians chapter 1, for we are enemies and hostile to God. And Ephesians chapter 2 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and following the principalities of this world. Do I need to keep going here? Do I need to keep making a case? So true conviction happens when blame stops. And maybe you've heard me tell this before, but this is a great story. G.K. Chesterton, a famous writer in the stream of Christianity, lived in London, and the London Times put an ad in the newspaper. And they were letting people write in essays and theses. And here was the thesis. What is wrong with the world? They were on the brink of a world war. Poverty and famine was sweeping Great Britain. What is wrong with the world? We still have the postcard. G.K. Chesterton writes in and says, Dear sirs or madam, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Isn't that great? No blame. No this, that. Well, it's the white, and if we could just get prayer back in schools, and if we... No. What's wrong? 
I am. So the first step in this is a conviction of sin that does not place blame, but rather accepts responsibility. The second thing that I see is this, a confession of Christ. It's not just a conviction of sin, but it's a confession of Christ. And this man, we're going to break this down. He says some very, very interesting things here. He confesses Jesus, but he confesses some certain things here. So it's not just a conviction of sin, but it's almost a confession of Christ as well. What's the first thing that he confesses? Well, it's the person of Christ. Hanging above Jesus, what was read in the text, is a sign that says, King of the Jews. Now listen, here's, do you know why Jesus was murdered? Not for feeding 5,000 people with a Lunchable. No. Not for raising the dead. Like who, Who's going to murder that guy? Right? This guy just healed all the sick. Crucify him. Right? That's a, why was he murdered? Because he claimed to be God. And he said, I am the true king of the universe. Well, the Romans didn't like when there was another king about, right? And so then an insurrection happened. And above Jesus is a sign that says, the king of the Jews. It was mockery. But this man says, Jesus, verse 42. you got to understand what... It's important that he said his name. His name. You know why? Because we celebrate it every year at Christmas. The angel came and and told Mary what this baby should be named. And it says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus comes from the Old Testament, Joshua, which means God saves. This man is not, it's not flippant that he said Jesus. He is confessing and he is saying, Christ, Christ, this is all I've got. I've seen my sin and now I see who you are, so I'm confessing the person of Christ. But the second thing that he says is this, is it's the purity of Christ. It's not just who he is but it's his purity. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. Now, that's historically true as well. Jesus' trial took place at night. Illegal, illegal. It was backroom conversations. He was blackballed by the Roman government, the Jewish leaders, all of that. Jesus broke none of the civil laws that way rather than claiming he was God. And what this man is saying is, I see the purity. Now, now listen, look up here. Why is this important? Why, why are we going through with this? Well, Jesus is being punished as a criminal, but yet he's done nothing wrong. Pastor Tyler read the verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And then the writer of Hebrews would say this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, we believe this, and this is a close-handed argument. This is not up for debate. This was settled by the church councils in 300 AD that Jesus Christ never sinned, that he never had a sinful thought, that he never broke any one of God's laws, but rather he was perfect and bore the punishment. 
So when we confess Christ, we're confessing who he is, that he is the Christ and that he is sinful, that he has done no wrong. I should be there. He should not be there. But he also confesses this, his position. His position. And this is where it gets real. Why would he say this? Verse 42, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come in to your kingdom. Question. If somebody has a kingdom, then they're probably a, a king. Why would this man say this? Because he knows the position of Jesus Christ. And look up here and don't miss this. If anybody preaches a gospel to you that Jesus Christ was so lonely and so heartbroken and He's hanging there on the cross and He's begging and you're breaking His heart and you need to invite Him into your heart and make Him Lord of your life, wrong. Listen, He is King and Sovereign of the universe. And you don't make him Lord, he is Lord. And you got two options. You bow the knee or the day of judgment, he will bust your knee and you will bow the knee. Because Paul writes to the church in Philippi that that day when the trumpet sounds and his kingdom invades this kingdom, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Don't get it twisted, bro. He is sovereign ruler of the universe. And this lonely Jesus, and this weak Jesus that is pitched to the church makes weak Christians and no Christians at all. This man recognizes this is the Christ. This is the Son of God. This is the position that he holds. And when we bow and we confess that, we are surrendering is the proper term. You recognize the truth of that. Is that the Christ that you've confessed? Or is it this Christ that's like sits on your dashboard bobblehead Jesus that says yes to all your prayers? Augustine says that if you read in the Gospels and take away what you like and leave what you don't like, it is not Christ that you love but yourself. If your Jesus never disagrees with you, then it is not the Jesus of the Scriptures. And this man confesses his position. Now, there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding when it comes to this confession. Is it the prayer, Jason? Is it the prayer? Do we say the prayer? Is it the prayer? Well, let me give you a little backstory, okay? When D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday and the revivalist movement sort of swept over here in the West, pastors went, I mean, like Billy Graham and these guys were packing out tents with 2,500 people, 5,000 people, 10,000 people. I mean, they're packing out stadiums. And pastors go and hear an evangelist whose gift is to create the crisis. There's the crisis. No change happens apart from a crisis. And then pastors would hear this, and then they would go back to their church on Sunday and mimic and do the same thing that these evangelists did, which in turn meant the prayer. Now listen, I don't have a problem with that. I still, when I speak at youth things and stuff like that, repeat this prayer after me. But listen, that's nowhere in the scriptures. You've got to understand that. It is a helpful guide in the moment when someone doesn't have, they don't know what to say. But here's what I believe and here's what the scriptures teach. Some of you, when you said, walk down the aisle and just as I am, they played that 10,000 times till somebody was like, I'll go down so we just go have lunch, okay, right? 
And you walk the aisle and you say the prayer. and you, That's awesome. But listen, I believe that you were saved in your pew, not when you came up and prayed with the pastor. Because it was just like when our kids were born. I'll never forget when Roman was born. The moment happens and boom, there he is, man. Like this idea, this concept to me, person, person right here is just incredible. But I got scared because in the moment, Roman wasn't really crying. Right? And if, I mean, that's, oh man, that's, we gotta be crying. We gotta be taking breath into our lungs. And I turned to the doctor and I said, he's not, he's not crying. And he said, we can fix that. And he turned Roman on his back and kind of did that on his spine. And Roman just wailed, man. He was just, ah, right? But listen, remember the order. Roman was born and then he cried out. He didn't cry out and then he was born. I believe what the scriptures teach is by grace you are saved through faith, not of your own doing, but this is a gift of God, so no one may boast. That God gives you the grace in the moment to even cry out and see who Jesus is. But there's a difference. Both of them are crying out, right? I mean, you got your Bible, you're looking at it. Both of them are crying out, right? One of them says, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Question, what's the difference? Save me, Jesus. And the other guy's like, yo, remember me, man. Save me. What's the difference? Well, one defines religion and the other defines Christianity. One man is save me from my predicament, Jesus. Save me from my divorce. Save me from my stupid mistakes. Save me from the consequences of my sin. Save me from this. But after that, I desire no relationship. The other man confesses and wants presence. I want to be with you. See, listen, look up here. Religious people confess that God is useful. Christians confess that God is beautiful. And there's a profound difference. And Westside, as your pastor, my desire and my prayer every Sunday, every day when I pray for you, is that you would love Christ that you would find Christ beautiful, that he would be more precious than money, more precious than sex, more precious than your relationships, more precious than your job, more precious than your little babies and your family, more precious than all of that, that at the end, that it is all Christ, that everything in my heart beats and desires for Jesus. That's the confession It's a conviction of sin, then it's a confession of Christ, but all of that is linked together with something. You see, what I'm teaching you is repentance, I'm teaching you conversion, and then this, it's faith, it's a connection through faith. That's the last thing, that's the key to all of this. You can't teach the gospel and you can't be assured of your spiritual inventory apart from repentance of sin, confession of Christ, and connection through faith. And what this man is saying are these words. Jesus, be with, remember me. And then verse 43, everybody focuses on the word paradise, right? That's actually not the main thing in verse 43. You're looking at it, I want you to underline this in your neighbor's Bible to make sure they're awake, okay? Write in their Bible, all right? It's okay. Verse 43, and he said to him, truly I say to you, that's probably good, right? probably good when Jesus turns to you and says, listen up, this is honest, all right? Truly I say to you, today, today, you will be with me. There it is. That's the key. B. 
be with me. Not paradise. Listen, some of you understood the gospel to be this like, get out of hell free card, punch your ticket, I'm good, so when I die at my funeral, the preacher doesn't have to lie type of a thing like that. Not Christianity, not eternal life. According to Jesus, when does eternal life start? Today. Today. You are with me today, now. And you are with me. You see, the key is presence here. And listen, this is the essence of the gospel. Please don't miss this. This is all I've got. If you miss this, i got nothing else for you, okay? It's with me. Maybe this will help. This is a famous picture of Jackie Robinson, the first African-American man to break all the barriers of segregation into Major League Baseball. One of Jackie's very first games in Brooklyn, he made a large error in the first of the game, and it cost the team a bunch of runs. When he was in the outfield, they had to stop the game because people and fans and the racist fans in the stands were throwing things at him, hurling insults at him because his mistake might have cost them the game. But one baseball player by the name of Pee Wee Reese, who was the shortstop, ran out into the field and looked at the fans and put his arm around Jackie Robinson. And the fans stopped. Huge moment, especially in that time in American history. What was Pee Wee Reese saying? He's with me. You don't treat him any different. You treat him like you treat me because he is with me. It was such a monumental moment in segregation and Major League Baseball that it's a statue outside the stadium. Do you understand what the gospel is? (laughs) The gospel is not your claim on Christ. The gospel is Christ's claim on you. And many of us are focusing on our grip, our grip on God. Am I holding tight enough? Am I doing this? Did I read my Bible? Am I doing the Jesus calling? Did I get enough pins and awanas? Did I say say all the words in the prayer? I say it every day because in that moment, what if I left out a word? And what if I die today before I said that prayer? And what if I do? And you are focused and you are gripping. And listen, listen, you're exhausted. You're exhausted. And there's no joy of the Christian life. There's no peace that surpasses all understanding. And there's none of that. Because Christianity is not about our grip in faith on God, but rather believing and trusting in God's grip on us in Christ. That's the key to all of this. It's when Jesus says, you're with me now. We don't make ourselves Christians. Jesus makes us a Christian. So it's a conviction of sin. It's turning away from the old things. It's confessing Christ, the person of who He is, His purity, and then His position. He is sovereign and He is Lord. But then it's a connection of faith. And listen, maybe you're peeking over the fence. Maybe you're not a Christian. You've you got to understand this. Everyone has faith. Everyone does. The other man on the cross had faith. His faith was in himself, not in Christ. So if you reject Jesus, that's a statement that you, quote, believe. And what is faith? But the living out of our beliefs. So of course you have faith. You can't make that argument. The question is, where is your faith? 
And when it comes to Christianity, it's not about the size of our faith, but the object. The object is what saves us. So what's the big idea? It's this. The assurance of my salvation is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The assurance of my salvation is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there are steps of obedience after this. We believe that now the proper confession in light of the New Testament is baptism. That I am placing my faith and my hope and my trust in Jesus Christ. I'm dying in this watery grave and I'm being resurrected in the newness of life. Then it's a life of obedience, turning from sin and turning to Christ. But don't get it twisted. Those things don't make us saved. Those things are the things that we do because we are. Because we are in Christ. So as the band comes up and leads us in a time of response, I have a few application questions that I want to ask you and state with you today. The first thing is this. You need to understand it's never too late. This man is dying on the cross. He dies moments later. It's never too late. The perfect time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Stop arguing with yourself. Stop making excuses. It's never too late. And then the second thing is this. You're never too far gone. Never. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your last name is. I don't care any of that. Jesus' arms are open. Come. Understand who he is and who we are. And then the last thing is this. I just want to bear good news over you today. You can really know. Oh my, you can really know, Esad. Because I believe when you leave from here and you walk in that boldness, your prayer life changes. You don't have to go in fear and in trepidation, but you can approach the throne boldly. You can say, Dad, I need this in my life. You're, you're my father. Your evangelism changes because you know, listen, the assurance of your salvation is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So maybe for some of you today, it's to come, and when you approach the table and the elements, it's there, therein lies your salvation, not you. Rest assured at the goodness of God's grace today. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I thank you for this moment. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you want us to know God, I pray for people in here today. God, I know within my spirit, today is a moment of freedom for someone in this place. Someone has lived in fear, in trepidation. They have no joy. They have no peace. Today that ends. The shackles of guilt and shame fall off of them today. They may know. And God, I believe for someone in here today that through the proclamation of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, today is their day of salvation. Today, they understand no more excuses. All right, it's Christ. This is it. I'm all in. And then would you grant the gift of faith in this place today? Father, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the wonderful and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Would you stand right where you're at and come forward and partake in communion as you feel led today?